Hi, this is Dave Pryor. I'm the host of Sound Notes, and I want to take a moment to invite you to join me at a really important upcoming event for leaders and those on the leadership path and organizations that are focused on business agility, the Elevate Agile Conference. It's a full day of executive-level speakers and transformation experience reports. You'll walk away with actionable insights to carry you into the coming year about where Agile is headed in the future. Plus, it's a great chance to make new connections with other leaders in the Agile world face-to-face. And along with your ticket, you'll also get free VIP access to a live performance by the Zach Brown Band and Collective Soul. It's all happening on September 28th and 29th in Atlanta. So check out the speaker lineup and get your tickets now at ElevateAgile.com. And you can use my code SOUND40, that's S-O-U-N-D 40 at checkout for 40% off the entry fee. Hey, this is Dave Pryor. Welcome to Leading Agile Sound Notes. I have been waiting to do this interview for a long time, and I'm very psyched about it. So we're going to talk all about design thinking today, and I have two experts from Leading Agile that are going to help me with this. So Angela Pete is here, and Derek Popink is here. Um, we're going to dig into what it is, why it's important, and just to set a little context, when I teach the CSPO course, one of the things I say in that course is there's a couple subjects you need to go learn about outside of class. Design thinking is one of those things. It's really, really important, in my opinion, to being successful as a product owner that you're well-versed in this stuff. So um, we're going to talk all about that today. So before we get started, thank you both for being here. Great to be here. Thanks, Dave. Yeah, pleasure. Um, and Angela, I'm going to ask if you, if you can go first. Would you mind telling the folks a little bit about your background, kind of how you come to this, how you come to Leading Agile and how you come to this topic? Sure. Um, So I grew up on a cherry farm, which was a really cool experience, but I want to give my parents a bit of credit since they were an early stage technology company. So I was in and around tech at at a very young age. We kind of had a household that was both tied to the land and tied to the future. I went into undergrad and grad school, didn't think I would be in tech. I ended up out of grad school working in transformation projects and they almost always had a technical component. And I loved working in and around the developers and figuring out how to get the message across in those organizations. I then ended up getting into a a product manager role for a bit and uh, hitting some roadblocks there and wanting to learn a little bit more of how to do things better. And I ended up in the Agile community And that's about the time where I started seeing design thinking as a really strong tool within the technology space. So I got into design thinking um, within the uh, Agile community and seeing what a strong and powerful tool that was for um, getting minds centered around that good North Star and especially cross-functional technical teams. And since then, I've ended up at Leading Agile, helping to make that transformation around Agile real. And I still believe in the power of design thinking and what it can do for folks. Um, Yeah, that's a little bit about me. I started out not realizing I was in tech, and I've pretty much been in tech my whole career. (laughs) All right. Well, thank you. And Derek, what about you? 
Well, thanks, Dave. I was introduced to computers at a fairly young age and started pro uh, programming uh, in middle school and high school and ended up getting a, a computer science degree um, in college. But along the way, I discovered this subfield of computer science called human-computer interaction. And what I experienced uh, through that field was that while computers and programming was complex and challenging and fun, that understanding the people was even more complex and challenging and fun. So my professional career, I entered into the world of usability and user experience and did that for about 10 years before I encountered this idea of agile. Uh, actually, through the through interactions with some of leading Agile's uh, current uh, current experts, folks like Chris Beale and Tom Churchwell, and others, and I was fascinated by how well it it mapped to the things that I was doing in terms of uh, team based problem solving. Uh, that's really a part of design thinking. So I I then switched over from working. Uh, full-time with a number of different employers to, to work in a consulting practice and have gone through a, a couple different consulting companies uh, before reaching Leading Agile. Leading Agile is sort of the, the perfect blend of, of what I've uh, been looking for in terms of team-based, collaborative, agile uh, problem solvers. Cool. And I, I want to give a shout out to the company too, because one of the things I love about working here is I'm surrounded by people that are way smarter than me that know about stuff I barely understand. Um, you're both examples of that. So I appreciate you being here. Um, so where does design thinking come from and what is it? Angela, did you want to start? Sure, sure. So design thinking was really originated or was used as a term in 1969 within a book called The Science of the Artificial. So that's where it arguably entered the um, academic consciousness. And then within uh, a couple years later, a couple decades later, in 2008, we saw Tim Brown step into Stanford and really coined the term human-centered design. And he was part of uh, Stanford and also started a company that's fairly well known in the design thinking community called IDEO. So that's some of its earlier stages. And, that, and then in the 2008 area, I would argue is when it really started taking a foothold within the, the larger community. And then it's been popularized. I think around 2011, people started using it, uh, bigger companies and definitely the West Coast uh, took it in and started implementing those methodologies and started beating the market in certain instances. Okay. So people have been leaning into it, I think post that era, especially. But Derek had a pretty special experience in having the opportunity to see some of that kind of grow up in Stanford. So how would you answer that question, Derek? Thanks, Angela. I remember one of the key things about the, the program that I was a part of at Stanford is that it was a collaboration between the computer science department, uh, Terry Winograd, and Dave Kelly, uh, one of the founders of co-founders of IDEO uh, from industrial engineering. So even from very early on, it represented um, a range of, of disciplines and a range of thought. And a lot of the 
the design thinking classes or activities that they had us do were uh, team-based, uh, looking for the, you know, what people could do together that was greater than the, the sum of their, you know, their individual contributions. It was a combination of, you know, going wide and exploring a whole range of ideas, what we would call divergent thinking, and then having a structured approach to narrow that in on the, you know, the best, the most important problem or the best solution, what we would call convergent thinking. And, and that, that pattern of thinking broadly and then focusing sharply um, and doing it with a with a team. So it's beyond the, what, you know, what one individual is capable of was just so, um, so powerful and so magical. So I got to see sort of the, the IDEO thought process, you know, reflected in in academia, uh, but then also had uh, many friends and colleagues who went off to do the same type of work in in other technology companies. Okay, cool. Thank you. Um, I want to pause for a second and talk a little bit about the idea of like wicked problems and, and when when it would make sense to use design thinking. Because one of the things that struck me about it when I first encountered it was it seemed really awesome. And it, it was sort of like the, I reacted to it the same way I reacted to UML. Like that seems really cool. If I had an infinite amount of time, I could solve every problem this way and I'd have great solutions, but I do not have that much time. So when, when would somebody be considering applying this to solve a problem or what kind of problems is it best suited for? So Dave, that's an excellent question, but I think we'll need to take a step back and, and break down the two different types of environments that uh, is, are, is talked about in the book Range by David Epstein. So you referenced wicked environments. He also talks about kind environments. So kind environments are ones where there's a lot of repetition. We understand the influences um, and the inputs into those systems. So chess is a really good one. Golf might be another example. And repetition is part of the, the power of those environments that will lead to success. A wicked environment is one where you can't necessarily use or, or look at that problem from that same frame because the inputs are very unique. The problem is, you know, there might be similar industry problems, but when you get into a given company and a given user, um, and we know that users and the power of using a persona when you're building something, it's about getting to those unique needs for that human. So within the book range, and I highly, highly recommend people give that a read. One of the big takeaways I had was, oh my God, this is what, this is what happens all the time with my clients. They sit down and they think that they have a kind environment. They think that their problems are simple when in fact, so many of the environments that we step into or the markets we're looking at, they're more wicked. They, they need more time to be addressed and they need to be looked at individually in order for that problem or that challenge to really be addressed successfully. So um, I'll start there and then I'll kick it over to Derek and for any additions. Yeah, when when you ask about a you know kind pro or a wicked problem, I think one of the things that immediately comes to mind for me is is the caveat we give people going into design thinking exercises, which is that things are going to get messy, 
and then they're going to get messier before they get clear. And I think, you know, that's, we, we know that to be true in, in most situations that, that making things complicated is the easy work. Getting them simple is the hard work and that, that takes time and it takes effort. Um, and it, it takes, you know, multiple people sometimes. Um, but especially if you're going to explore the full range of options in an opportunity or in a problem, um, you, you need to expand your, your boundaries and you need to include other people's perspectives. And, and that does scare people. So we try to, you know, set expectations accordingly that you're, you're going to experience some ambiguities, some, uh, some stress, uh, as you dive into this, but we, can also reassure people that design thinking processes help make sense of that mess okay. and help bring bring order to it. So wicked problem solving, um, it doesn't have to be something we're afraid of. It's something that we can intentionally address through design thinking. So let me see if I, I wanna just check in on this. So I'm thinking of two examples, one that might be of uh, a kind problem and one that would be a wicked problem. Mm -hmm. developing a vaccine for a virus, it sounds to me like that would be a kind problem because we have an approach, a defined approach to doing that. Whereas getting everyone vaccinated would be a wicked problem. I think that's an excellent example. Yeah, we've, we've, got, a, we've got a process that we follow for vaccines. Um, and even when it comes to testing different compounds or different, you know, strains, that's, that's you know, sort of the um, Thomas Edison problem with the light bulb, yeah. right? You just need to test about a thousand different combinations, but you know, eventually you're going to succeed. Right. Um, whereas the, how do you vaccinate people? We've, we've never vaccinated people at this scale before. And, you know, in such a heterogeneous way where every state, every city, every, you know, every organization is going to do it a little bit differently. And everybody, everybody's got a different reason for wanting it or not wanting it. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Um, cool. All right. So thank you. That, that, I think that helped frames it up. So we would take the time if we had a wicked problem. Um, I do want to talk about how it fits with Agile, but maybe because of where we are in the conversation, could you explain a little bit about how it works? Sure. So there are a couple of different elements that go into the design thinking process. And at its core, it has five different steps. So you start with empathizing. So that's gathering data to me in a lot of ways. It's interviewing people, it's understanding the environment, and it's not jumping to conclusions at any point. You're not trying to judge at that point. And then you get into define, where you're looking closer at the personas, at decisions, at potential challenges. And then you get into um, ideating, which is where uh, we just heard Derek talk about um, diverging and converging. So this is very divergent thinking. So thinking, all right, all the, what are all the options? It's just like not stop ourselves. Let's not limit ourselves getting things out. And then you get into really prioritizing those after you get those. So that would be converging in what you think you may want to test. And then you get into my favorite phase, I would argue, which is prototyping. And that's just taking your, your prioritized option and putting it out into the market or into the hands of a user. And it's just so much fun. You get to learn so much. Um, people don't always 
do what they say or say what they do or mean what they say. And it's just because humans are complicated creatures and we have both, you know, this conscious uh, frontal lobe system and then a subconscious system and we get influenced a lot by that subconscious, I would argue way more than people ever realize. And prototyping helps you really understand what's, what's likely happening. Um, and then after you get that prototype together, you test and you're gathering that data and then you can loop back into the ideate phase. Sometimes, um, there's always kind of that, that bigger loop, um, or feedback loop that comes into design thinking that's super powerful. So a lot of what, um, happens when it within an agile team, when you look at all of these bigger steps, it happens when you're defining the problem for sure. So it happens at the macro level with what you're trying to build, but then at the, at a team and a week to week sprint, you can also overlay this uh, framework into a micro setting where you're looking at like, okay, what do we need to define or what do we need to change or what do we need to prototype? So it, it's a tool that I think people think about um, in some cases, just in a macro or a micro setting, but I think it, it can overlay into lots of different areas of um, project work and project definition. Okay. So I have, I have two follow-up questions to this and Derek, maybe I'll just, just to mix it up, I'll throw these to Derek. <laughs> um, Sounds good. I'm curious about two things. One is um, when, when we talk about a prototype, like how, I mean, are we like building out a whole thing? Is this like a paper-based prototype? And the second one would, second question would be, how do you know when you're done iterating on this? Like, when do you have the answer? That's, thank you. Those are really good questions. Mm -hmm. So uh, we sometimes say in, in uh, our community that the prototype should be Goldilocks quality, right? They need to be, um, they need to solicit, elicit a, an emotional reaction from the person that they're shown to. Is it too hot or it's too cold? It's too hard or it's too soft? We, we really want people to emotionally react to the prototype because that gives us the, the best clues that we're on the right path with uh, the way we're designing things or we're on the wrong path. Okay. Um, another key aspect about prototypes is that they should be, you know, 90% a facade. And I think of those um, like a old, old Western towns that you might see in a, in a Western movie where, you know, the camera, it looks like you're in a, a fully functioning village. Uh, <laughs> but if, if, if you were on the movie set, you would walk around the corner and there would be no, nothing behind that wall, right? It's just held up by stilts. Yeah. So the, the, the front facade uh, of the building is all there but every, you didn't build anything behind it because you didn't need it in order to get a reaction from the audience. Okay. So that's, that's the amount of work we want to do with prototypes. Um, as far as knowing when we're done, it, you it will usually when, when in the earlier steps of design thinking, if you've defined your problem, well, you've, you've generated a list of questions that you want to answer um, questions you want to understand about the, the, the market or about the user or about their task or about their environment. And the prototype is essentially your way to answer those questions. So if you show that to a, a number of representative users, you're going to get patterns of, of answers. 
And once you've gotten you know clear patterns, uh, that's when you can stop prototyping and move on to either a new question or a new iteration. Okay, cool. So it seems like there's a lot of overlap with Agile, but I'm curious, um, wh why is this? Why does this matter to people who are becoming product owners and working in Agile? Like, why is it relevant there? Oh, the product owners, I, I think one of the most powerful mindsets of a product owner is thinking like a scientist. Okay. That you really have to look at everything you do as a, an experiment that you're going to be learning from. And you're making the that's part of what is kind of baked into the design thinking perspective is you come in, just like Derek said, with a hypothesis, and then you're making your decision based off of data, not an assumption, right? So it's okay to start off with an assumption, um, but that you want to make sure that you're backing it up with something afterwards. And product managers, if you're putting, especially a new product into the market, you're, you don't know what's going to happen yet. And even when you're putting in a new feature into the market, you can prototype and test as much as you want, but getting it out there really is its own test. So I think that, that that's one thing that comes to mind for me is just that power of that scientific thinking. Okay. And Adam Grant covers that a lot in his, one of his newer books, Think Again. Okay. Um, so, yeah. Cool. Um, Derek, you want to add anything to that or? Yeah, I'll, the, just to build on that, I think there's, there's so much to be said for uh, the observation of people um, in their environments, in their task, interacting with, with the prototype or even just uh, using their existing tools. And, and Angela hit on it earlier, and that is that people will often tell you what they do or tell you what they don't do. Uh, and that's a construct that they've built in their minds, but their reality is often very different. People are often unconscious of the, the ways that they work around systems or of the shortcuts that they take, right? They, um, we, we, we develop muscle memory and other things that help us, you know, Get, a, get around the software that we use day to day. Yeah. Um, but there's so much, so many opportunities to improve that if you're observing um, and not judging what they're doing, but just looking for ways to, to, to make their experience better. Okay, cool. I appreciate you both kind of talking through. Did you want to add anything? Yeah, yeah. When I think about like why it's important for product managers additionally, um, so much the, the, the thing that hit me, I think probably, I don't know, seven years ago, I remember just like walking around and having this epiphany that like, oh my God, everything is designed. Everything a human makes is designed. It's just how conscious we are of that design process happening. And I think that the product managers are, are creators in that way. And design thinking is is just a problem solving tool for being able to test out your creation. So when I coach product owners, our managers, that but that's one of the things that I I see people just like really shake their heads on, and it seems to resonate with a lot of folks. Yeah. So. Cool. I, I it's funny when you said 
that everything is designed, I started thinking of concur and I'm thinking, I don't know. <laughs> I'm not sure about that one. Right. Um, but there maybe it was designed by somebody who wasn't thinking or watching other people. Yeah, yeah. It's a consciousness at which it was designed. Yeah. Like how, well, yeah, go ahead, Derek. <laughs> We, we we think of five different styles of design and, and the first one is unintentional design right you you just sort of built it as you went but you didn't have a plan in mind um, and that's often closely followed by you know sort of uh, development-led design um, where you've got really skilled software developers and they're building it to the best of their knowledge but they maybe haven't been trained in you know the fundamentals of of vision and memory and attention and things like that yeah. So they're doing what works for them, not realizing that might be different from what works for a majority of people. Yeah. So. I was just thinking when we started the conversation, we were looking at when this stuff came about. I started thinking about when I started to learn about paying attention to that. And I remember when Jakob Nielsen started writing all those books. And up until that point, it was just the developers built whatever they felt like building. Like nobody yeah. even cared to pay any attention. The customers were stupid, so they just couldn't figure it out. Um mm -hmm. I really like what you said, Angela, too, about being like a scientist, because one of the things I'm always talking about in class is part of the product owner's job is to protect the company from the fact that a lot of the executives that they interact with or people having the ideas, um, they talk about listening to their gut. And so they make these decisions based on stomach mm -hmm. bacteria and this assumption that they're the second <laughs> coming of Steve Jobs. Um, and they have, we have to test that stuff and mm -hmm. figure out if they're right or not. Absolutely. Absolutely. There, there are moments though, where I do feel like the gut does come into play. Like when you're, you're to Derek's point, like a, when you're watching somebody use a piece of technology and you're watching how their hands move or where their cursor is going and then hearing what they say afterwards. And then you're pairing that or overlaying that with what the larger goal is and yeah. what kind of like area of the market you're trying to, to approach or, or tap into or expand and on. So I do feel like there is, is a gut, element in it but it's that reaction or that gut decision it should be made after you've gathered a lot of that data to be able to say oh this is what the person said and you're overlaying all those factors so my gut tells me that if okay. i put this feature in then it'll take us further away from you know our intended persona even though the last five people have said they wanted it it yeah. doesn't meet our bigger needs but mm. so i i can again i can say see where the gut comes in but it's got to be backed up and surrounded by data and to me that that means a, a, if we can stop for just a moment on what data means yeah. <laughs> i think this is really important too so there's different types of data. We're pretty familiar with quantitative numbers, right? Qualitative, more um, as Brene Brown calls it, data with a soul. Okay. <laughs> um, so if you put those on one X, Y axis or on the Y axis, and then on the X axis, you would do internal versus external. This is one place where I'll coach people to say, all right, if you only get information from your uh customer service group on what they are hearing people come in and complain about. That's one set of qualitative internal data. And if all of you, you look at is your usage stat, 
stats, then that's internal uh, quantitative data. You're not getting any external. And a lot of, um, to me, a good rule for product management um, comes into the rule of starting with at least three to five. If you can get at least three to five users to use your product and, and test it out, you'll start seeing things at that rate. And I think that the same um, number works with the amount of data you're getting to really paint that bigger picture before you make that decision. So yeah, you're going to make a gut decision after you look at three different types of hopefully blended internal, external, qualitative, quantitative sources in order to be able to, to be a good product manager, I would argue, or okay. to be an even better one. I think that's great. So it's sort of like, I just keep thinking about sports analogies. Like if, if I'm watching a baseball game and they're like, well, he's going to throw this, that's based on data they're looking at of every every pitch that pitcher's thrown against this batter in the history of whenever and the current circumstances so they can try to predict it with data. Is that? Yeah, versus I mean, It's okay just, if you yeah. say no mm -hmm. to that. You can say no, you can <laughs> shut me down. Sellers used to yeah. do that all the time. <laughs> Um, well, for me specifically, I think that's, that's right. But my point is that that's one set of data. So you can use just that numbers and those history, that history. But if you really want to understand how you're coming up against this picture, another bit of data that you may want to get in the sporting world is, yeah, you can look at all of the stats. Do you have any friends that have like had dinner with him in the last like oh, two wow. months that could talk about like what kind of mindset he's in okay. or how do you have any friends that have like played with him or, um, or what are, what are like different, uh, played in that kind of heat or played in, the, in yeah, played or in whatever. Yeah. Or even at that specific stadium, if that's a new stadium for you, like what kind of issues do pitchers have specifically maybe in that environment would be another kind of element of data to overlay in order to make your decision on how you're going to approach that challenge. All right. Cool. Thank you. Um, so what are some examples? Could either of you offer like an example of something that where design thinking has been used in a product or the creation of something that a lot of folks might be familiar with and maybe how, how it was used to make the product better. Yeah, I remember the, this was one of the moments where I was like, Ideo is my dream company <laughs> when I heard, heard of them walking through this. So Acela is a train system on the East Coast. And when um, our government was at one point in time trying to provide a better offering for the business travelers going mainly probably between Boston, New York, and DC. Um, they were putting together a cella and they went to IDEO and they said, Hey, we want, we want to, they wanted just to address one specific element of, of that experience. I think maybe it was like the tickets. I should really look this up a bit more, but so they went to IDEO and they said, hey, we want to improve this ticket design or whatever the piece was. And what happened was that IDEO stepped in and they said, well, what's that whole experience? So they they were able to take that train experience and, and step back and say, what are 
what do the seats feel like? You know, how are people booking this? Like, what are all of the little elements that really help add and enhance that experience? So I think that once the Acela train system got put into play, it was really popular because people had taken a very user-centered approach and stepped back and looked at that whole journey of what happens from start to finish. Um, so that's one that comes to mind, but yeah, any others on, on your end, Derek? So the other one that's coming to mind for me um, is the, the story of the, the MRI machine from GE Healthcare. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So there's a, there was a, a, a design and development lead at, at General Electric who uh, happened to be in a hospital looking at these, you know, really large MRI machines that that hospitals purchase and and, and use uh, extensively, and he happened to be observing the experience of you know uh, children, pediatrics who needed to go through uh, through an MRI and how how afraid they were and how that tended to lead to you know bad outcomes like the, the tests not working and and a lot of emotional distress. Um, and realized that there that it wasn't meeting the needs of that that age group, so uh, he worked with others uh, at General Electric and did a, a you know a series of sort of ideating sessions and prototyping sessions, and they ended up creating MRI machines that that looked like a pirate ship or looked like a spaceship, and not only just the machine itself, but the entire experience around, you know, uh, kind of being prepared to go on a journey and having, you know, uh, healthcare attendants dressed up in costumes. And it, it became a, almost like a theme park, you know, and, and the, the challenge to lie still was baked into the story. And they tested these ideas and got dramatically different results from, from the pediatrics that were going through it. Much less emotional distress, much more accurate, you know, uh, medical results, and much more, you know, happy parents and, and staff. Yeah. So just a, a really awesome example of seeing, seeing an unmet need in the world and then finding a, a, a new creative way to address it. And a noble one to help children as well. That's such a great example. Yeah, this is a great. I think I think they're both great examples. I mean, as somebody who takes the train, both the Amtrak, the regular Amtrak, and and the Acela, and the the sort of New Jersey Transit SEPTA version of that, the Acela is a dramatic <laughs> upgrade in life from the other ways of traveling, and it is more than just the train itself. I mean, the whole experience of not just faster, but everything about it's more elegant. Um, these are great. So. If there's one thing that, like, I'm going to ask this question of each of you, like one particular thing that you would say to somebody who's moving into a product on a role about design thinking that you think they really need to pay a lot of attention to, what would that be? The thing that comes to mind for me and the, the one of the reasons that I see design thinking in Agile in such great fits is that design thinking, when played well, is a team-based sport. And I, I think a new product owner, uh, someone moving into a product owner role doesn't need to feel like they are solely responsible for the, you know, the output of the design thinking, right? It doesn't require you to be independently creative, you know, or, or you know, an incredible designer. It requires you to essentially invite 
the other members of your team and or you know the stakeholders around you and your users to be part of the conversation to really engage to be involved in in co-design and co-creation and and there's great you know resources in terms of uh, doing design thinking activities or methodologies but really it's that willingness to invite others to play and invite them to participate and that's you know gives you great great results it seems almost like improv in a way <laughs> Very much so. Yep. Yeah. You 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 want to build on the ideas of others. That's that's half the battle. Yeah. Cool. Yes, and yes, and. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, gosh, I think for me, the thing that I will warn product owners about when it comes to tools like this is just how uncomfortable it is for people at first, and it you know they're stated it very well that it gets messy before it gets clearer and I will set that expectation with the teams that I will walk through these experiences but when you're a product manager you have to be ready for the confusion and the angst and the struggle knowing that there's that gem at the end of the whole experience and that that's okay that that's part of the whole process um and yeah, I, I love, I, I learned to love it now. Like when I step into meetings and I see people like cross their arms and they're like, what is this? And you just tell them they may not want to be there. And by the end they're, you know, smiling and walking out the door and being like, I, that was really cool. Like that there's just, it was this, a total dumpster fire. It was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> like we got to something or we figured something out and that you can do that in a cross-functional manner that just like trust the, the, we also talk about trust the process, you know, and that's hard sometimes when there are a bunch of people in front of you that are very uncomfortable so yeah, trust and that's another parallel to agile too i think because there's mm -hmm. all the anxiety about not knowing what's going to happen and just trying to figure out the next right step and having to find a sense of ease in that moment of discomfort while you let mm -hmm. the process carry you into the next right moment yeah you can you can have a sprint that is just goes totally off the rails but it was only one sprint, right? And you can get back on course. In the same way, you can have a prototype in design thinking that is a total failure and nobody likes it. Yeah. Um, but, it but it was a very efficient failure because you learned that you know, in a week or less rather than waiting six months or 12 months to put it in front of a customer. Yeah. So yeah, you also, celebrate those, those failures because they, they, they help you learn and they learn fast. I've become really hung up on the idea of falling more in love with the problem than the answer to the problem. I think mm -hmm. so many people walk in with a solution defined in their head. It's like, well, can't we just sit and like look at this messed up thing for a while? Um, yeah. I like the Very way Very wicked thinking that. of you. Yeah. <laughs> wow. All right. Well, love this, the problem. <laughs> this was great. Um, I do want to do more um, interviews about this. So what I'm going to ask is that if people are listening, if there's specific questions that you have about this, if you don't mind sending them, um, I'm going to put my contact information in the show notes. Um, but Angela, if people want to reach out to you, what's the best way to get in touch with you? LinkedIn, for sure. That's one of the only bits of social media I use. I just don't put a lot of energy into those other communities. So, and I'm happy to meet with people and, and talk. Um, so please reach out on LinkedIn. All right, cool. And Derek, what about you? 
I would say the same thing. LinkedIn is a great way to connect with me, to communicate with me. And I'd love to hear from you. All right. I really appreciate you both doing this. I've been wanting to have a podcast on this topic for a very long time. So I'm grateful <laughs> to you for making time for it. And hopefully we'll be able to do a lot more. Looking forward to it. My pleasure. Thank you both. 